0: we are looking now at Exodus 15, through 27. Now, as we have most recently seen God deliver Israel through the waters of the Red Sea, destroying their enemies. And then that great exuberant song that Moses and Miriam lead the people of God in, and they are singing God's redemptive praises. They're singing about his judgments. They're singing about all that he's done for them Now, Having ended that glorious song of joy and rejoicing and exaltation, notice this in verse 22, we now read, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, because they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, therefore it was named Marah, And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, literally a tree. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the interesting things when we look through The narratives about what God is going to do for Israel in the wilderness. And we're not yet in the wilderness. This is going to be the first step for Israel into the wilderness. To this point, God has protected them and kept them from the wilderness. Remember, he hemmed them in between the Red Sea and the wilderness to show them his mighty power and the deliverance that they would experience in the exodus. And yet, um, when God does bring them into the wilderness, and we read the accounts here in Exodus and those other accounts in numbers, we start to see that God does something very wonderful for his people in the wilderness. Even at that point when they are complaining and grumbling, he is going to give them symbols of his redemption. Now, you will know some of those symbols. You'll know, as I've noted already, that God will give them manna from heaven. He will rain down angels' bread from heaven And he will also give them the serpent on the pole. Remember when they're bitten by those venomous serpents. And he gives them that symbol of redemption, telling them to look at the bronze serpent. Whoever looks will be healed. And then there is perhaps most well known besides the manna is the water from the rock. On two occasions, there is that rock, the Apostle Paul will say, that followed them. And God provided for them water from the rock. And yet... Before all of those symbols of redemption, and those are the main symbols of redemption in the wilderness, God gives Israel this account right here of the bitter waters made sweet by God telling Moses to throw a tree into the water. Now, as I've already noted, this is Israel's first step into the wilderness. And as they come into the wilderness, we're going to see two things here in this short account. First, we're going to see uh, a wilderness proving of Israel, a testing, a proving of Israel, and then we're going to see a wilderness provision for Israel. God is going to test Israel, prove them in the wilderness, and then He is going to provide for them in the wilderness. Well, very interesting if you look at this in connection. Here is Israel, all one million plus of them, singing God's praises in loud triumphant, joyful exaltation to God for what he's just done for them in the exodus. And then three days later, they are complaining. We are just like them. They are singing God's praises. And three days later, they are complaining about God's minister. They are praising God for redemption. And then they are grumbling and complaining and forgetting God. And it's instructive because you know that's going to be the repeated trajectory of the history of Israel throughout that wilderness wandering. They will complain. God will judge them or send chastisement on them. They will cry out to the Lord. God will provide for them. They will complain. They will forget his works. There's even a psalm dedicated to this. If if you ever read Psalm 106, I believe it is. It's recapping how often the Lord is showing himself to be the faithful, merciful, compassionate God, and how often the people are forgetting about him and complaining and grumbling about what they want and what they don't have and what the church is doing wrong, what everybody's doing wrong, and what God's not giving them. And it's interesting that the Lord sets this here for us as Israel takes that first step into the wilderness. I've I always thought that was interesting. It doesn't take them but three days in the wilderness to forget everything that God's done for them. Now, there is a lot of mystery surrounding this account. Um, it's very clear that the Lord is testing his people. And. Um, when Moses now leads them into the wilderness, he knows that this is going to be a season of trial for the people of God. They're going to have to trust the Lord. They they have him already delivering them. They have him in the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, guiding them and leading them and manifesting his presence with them. Imagine this. Imagine being in the wilderness, having God with you, in that miraculous pillar of cloud and fire and yet not trusting that he can provide for you. Now, we read that Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness. They went three days and they found no water. Now, this is a severe test. There is one thing and only one thing that the Israelites need to survive for more than three days, and that is water. They, they are not here lacking luxuries they are not here lacking all the pleasures that they had in egypt they are lacking the very thing that is necessary for them to stay alive now that's important because that's going to be a massive testing for them Um, the very thing they need for their livelihood god is withholding from them to see if they are going to trust him for it now had they trusted him had they been walking by faith They would have realized, and I don't know where I heard this, but I've always loved this. They would have realized that the God who was looking down on them from the cloud could have poured rain into their mouths to satisfy them with water. Think about that. He is with them in a cloud. He can give them water from that cloud. This is the God who is going to show them that he can give them water out of a rock. This is the God who has just brought them through the Red Seas by parting the waters and by destroying their enemies in the waters. And yet three days in, three days in, they have already forgotten who God is and what he has pledged himself to do for them in the covenant promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now, think about that. That's the background. They should have remembered That God said, I am going to redeem a people. I am going to bring that people into a land. I'm going to give you an inheritance. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I will be a God to you and to your descendants after you. He had pledged himself to them in covenant promises. God was not going to break his covenant. He was going to do for the descendants of Abraham what he had promised to do for them. Now, that is instructive to us because we have already seen many times that the Exodus is a type of the redemption that we have in Christ, right? Just as God delivered his people through the judgment waters, so God delivers us through the flood waters of his wrath going over Jesus, right? Jesus is. The greater Moses that leads his people out, Jesus calls his own death and resurrection an exodus in Luke chapter 9 when he's there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He is the Passover lamb. He is the firstborn son that's going to be destroyed under the wrath of God. He is in every way the fulfillment of what God was typifying in the exodus. And every one of us who is in him by faith, has experienced a better exodus already through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He has delivered us from Satan and sin and death. That's the entire point of the exodus. It serves the purpose of our redemption in helping us understand the gospel more. And yet, we, like Israel, oftentimes forget the covenant promises of God. And when we start to grumble and complain, We are doing the exact same thing that Israel did. You know, much to my shame, I'm just going to be vulnerable tonight. I caught myself complaining about something about an hour before I came here to preach this to you. And I was like, man, I'm a mess. I was complaining about something I didn't have in ministry that I felt like I needed. And my wife, the godly woman that she is, said, are you trusting the Lord for that? Because we are just like Israel. We want to make things happen. We want to have everything at our disposal. We want to make sure that other people do what we want and give us what we want. We want to have a life of ease. And God has not promised us a life of ease. The second he redeems us, he brings us into the wilderness. And it's hard. And there's trials. And there's testing. And there's affliction. And there's difficulty. And our souls don't like that. But God has promised to be with his people And God has called us to trust him. Now, what does Israel do wrong here? What did they do wrong? Well, notice they grumble against Moses. Now, their complaint is really against the Lord. But again, they grumble against the Lord's servant and they make his life bitter because they don't have any sweet water to drink and there is bitterness in their own souls. Phil Riken puts it this way. I thought this was very helpful. He said, There are several ways to categorize Israel's sin. The people were forgetful. As the psalmist later wrote, When our fathers were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses. They rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. That's Psalm 106. And the writer there, the psalmist, is reflecting back on this account. They forgot. They were forgetful. Riken goes on to say, they were also selfish. Their primary concern was what God could do for them. Listen to this. They were ungrateful and immature. Ryken says their deepest spiritual problem, though, was a lack of faith. The Israelites simply did not believe that God would take care of them. They did not trust in the faithfulness of God. Now, I just want to say this tonight. When we catch ourselves complaining... We are acting just like them, forgetful, selfish, immature, but especially we are lacking faith in him. Israel should have found this to be a very simple thing. They should have gone to the Lord. Now, before I talk about what Moses did, I do want to just point out that there is a deep symbol in what God is doing. Why? Why has Israel come to this place where they thought they would find water where they are so desperate for that life-giving sustenance only to find these waters bitter. What is the point of God doing that in the test to them? Well, you know, it's interesting. If you go back to the beginning of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter one, verse 14, we read that the Egyptians made the Israel's lives bitter with hard labor. That was the first time that word is used in Exodus. The Egyptians made the israelites lives bitter and then in chapter 12 verse 8 remember when god gives israel the instructions about the passover lamb they are to eat it with bitter herbs because they are to remember the bitterness of egypt out of which god has brought them egypt made their life bitter God gave them a reminder of that bitterness while giving them a reminder of the sweetness of his redemption. Now, as he brings them to this place and to the wilderness and they come to this place where they think they're going to find sweet water, but they find bitter water, God is now reminding them what is in their hearts. It's not what is in Egypt. It's what is in their hearts. Uh, One writer Puts it this way after the Red Sea redemption, Israel finds herself drinking from bitter waters. Do you see the trial? Bitterness in Egypt, bitterness in the wilderness. Has God really done anything at all? Beyond physical need, beyond emotional frustration, this trial reaches down to the very depths of faith in the God of Israel. And what did Israel do? She became bitter. The water was bitter. And Israel became bitter. The bitter water acted like a catalyst for the bitterness of Israel's soul. Israel tasted not just the bitterness of the waters, but the bitterness of forsaking the Lord. Isn't that interesting? God is giving this test to Israel, not just to see what Israel will do, but to show Israel what's still in their hearts. Now, I think if you've had an experience like many Christians have after you've been converted and God has made you to taste the sweetness of his grace in the gospel for the first time and you are overjoyed. I remember saying to someone one time, um, how could anyone not have unending joy in Jesus? And then like a year in, I get it. And you get it because God brings you into the wilderness and he shows you there's still more sanctification that you need in your soul. There's still bitterness in your soul. Israel here doesn't need salvation. They've already received salvation. Typically in the Red Sea, they need sanctification. This testing is to show them there is more that God needs to do in their souls, more that they need to learn about him, more that they need to learn about themselves more about how much still needs to be rooted out of them and how much they need to be purified and built up and, and and brought low in humility and brokenness. You know, it's interesting. The place of testing here is supposed to be a place of trusting for Israel, but instead it becomes a place of failing for Israel. Um Just as I noted already, the disappointment for Israel came remarkably quick after they were singing God's praises. That's how quick we are to forget and not to trust the Lord. The moment God sends the smallest hardship into our lives, we by nature buckle under it. I know that's true for me. I would imagine it's true for some of you. When the times are good... We think we're doing good spiritually. But here's the reality. If Israel had come to this place and they had found this huge, massive pool of water and it was the cleanest, clearest, sweeter wa- sweetest water they'd ever drank, they would not have trusted the Lord for it. They probably would not have thanked the Lord for it. And they would have thought that they were in a much better position than they were in. By God testing them and showing them what's in their hearts, By way of analogy to what's in the water, they are being brought to a place of seeing who they are and who the Lord is. Um, Before we look at this provision together tonight, I just want to encourage you as you look at this account and you consider Israel's response and you consider your own responses to the hardship and the trials of life. I would ask this question, I would ask myself as well, when you are feeling frustrated, when you catch yourself beginning to complain or to feel bitter or whatever, are you going to the Lord? Are you going to him and saying, Lord, you have always provided for me. You have always taken care of me. You have always borne very gently and tenderly with me. You have not treated me according to my sins or punish me according to my iniquities. You have been very long suffering with me. You have been so patient when I've been so impatient. That's what the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to remember who he is when he brings us into a wilderness testing and trial. You know, I always play in my head something that a girl who was taking graduate courses with me once said she was from New Zealand and her dad had incredible physical afflictions. Um, he He was basically a quadriplegic at the point when she told me this. And she said, but you know what? God's grace has been so great to my dad. I've never, ever heard him complain once about the pain that he's in constantly. I thought, wow. I am nothing like that by nature, but God wants to make us a people that trust him, even in the wilderness of trial, wilderness where we feel the bitterness of this life. You know, I also think that Israel is meant to not just learn about the bitterness in their own hearts, but the bitterness of the things in this world. God is constantly trying to teach Israel not to trust in the things of this life. You know, there is, there's, a, there's a lesson here for us where God is wanting us to understand that the things of this world can never satisfy in and of themselves. That even something as basic a need as water to keep them alive is not going to be what really and truly satisfies them apart from the Lord who gives them what they need. That's a A very profound lesson in this passage, that if we had all the provisions of life, but we're not trusting in the Lord who gives them, what good is that for us spiritually? Now, I often think about that prayer in Proverbs 30, where uh, the author of that proverb says to the Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. There's something the Lord wants us to learn to have just enough so that we trust him fully. And that when we don't have enough, we continue to trust him fully. And so as we are considering this wilderness proving and testing of Israel, I want us to secondly consider the wilderness provision. Well, notice that Moses does what a million Israelites should have done. It's very interesting. Israel is constantly complaining and grumbling every time they come up against a hardship or a trial. They are fighting and bickering and grumbling. And, and you know what's happening? Moses is storming the throne of heaven for them. Moses is teaching us what we should do. Now, there are times when Israel does cry out to the Lord and In Psalm 107, we hear that repetition. Then they cried out to the Lord. Here, Moses is crying out to the Lord. Notice verse 25. He cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. Now, in the Hebrew, the word showed is directed by way of instruction. There was some sort of provision that God had already provided, but Moses couldn't see it without the Lord directing him to it. That's not an insignificant detail. There was already a means by which God was going to heal the bitter waters. But Moses in himself could not see it. The people could not see it. But the moment that Moses cried out to the Lord, the Lord directed him to a tree. And notice the Lord says, tells him by way of instruction to throw it into the water. And the water became sweet. Now, There is no reason for us to think that this was a natural remedy. There have been accounts of certain places in Africa where water is undrinkable unless some certain plant is put into it. I think that we are to get from this that this is a supernatural act. This is not some natural thing. God has already provided for what he is going to do. And he is giving Israel a symbol, a symbol of how he is going to heal and provide for them. Um you know it's interesting if your mind has not gone here already, I think that it should. Because when you think in redemptive history of the significance of trees, and we don't know anything about this tree. We don't know what kind it was, we don't know whether it was a living tree or a dead tree. We don't know anything about it except that there was a tree and God said, Put it in the waters and it will heal the waters of their bitterness. But when we think about trees in scripture, our minds naturally go back to the garden, don't they? And to that first tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from which Adam and Eve ate. And and that sweetness that God had for them in the garden was immediately turned to bitterness, wasn't it? They now are going to eat the bitter fruit of their sin and their rebellion. And The world that is the wilderness is full of bitterness and emptiness and lifelessness. And I think that we are meant to go back there. And then as God has given us this picture and we go forward and we know that the next time there is a tree that's significant in Scripture, it's the cross. Um, And that is, in a very real sense, the tree of life. And then when we come to... The end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, at the the very end of Scripture, book ending as it were, there is a tree and its leaves are for the healing of the nation. That tree is Christ. That tree is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is given by God to be the tree of life for the healing of the nations. Listen to this. Jonathan Edwards, reflecting on this tree in the wilderness, said this. This tree is the tree of life. They are going to die without water. It's not just that they want better water. They can't drink the bitter waters or they will die. This tree thrown into the waters is the tree of life. Edward says it signifies Jesus Christ. It signifies God himself. The tree being cut down represents the death of Christ being cast into the waters, uniting himself to his people by coming down from heaven and taking our nature. I don't think that Edwards is hyper-spiritualizing. This is a picture of the gospel. How will the bitter waters of the trials of life be made sweet for a believer? It's through the cross. How can we suffer in this life? And yet with the Apostle Paul say, we also glory in tribulations because of the cross. How can we learn not to grumble and complain when we don't get our way? In the church, we look at the cross. The Lord Jesus emptied himself of everything at the cross. He gave up everything for us and for our redemption. And the cross makes every bitter thing sweet. I often think about one of my theological heroes in the faith, Samuel Davies. He was uh, called the Apostle of Virginia And he would go on to be the president of Princeton University and Davies when he was very young in his early 20s had a wife who was pregnant and she got sick and she died and he lost his wife and his baby at about 22 years old. And that sort of experience would tend to make the average person very bitter, maybe even sinfully angry against God. But Davies in his diary essentially says, what more do I have but to serve the Lord with all my zeal, with all my fervor, and to go and preach the gospel to everyone that I can. And he would go and he would plant churches and he would have this incredible ministry. Martin Lloyd-Jones would actually say that Samuel Davies is the greatest preacher in American history. And I've often thought about that experience of losing his beloved wife and child And not allowing that to grip his heart with bitterness, but finding the cross and the gospel and what Christ had done, even making that extremely bitter experience sweet. Now, I need this, and I imagine you need this, because as the apostles say in the book of Acts, through many difficulties, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. God has brought us into the wilderness after redeeming us. He has brought us through a very hard world. And though he gives us comforts along the way and he gives us joys and he allows us to enjoy things in his creation, he has also promised us hardship, trial, challenges, afflictions, and difficulties. And the sooner we come to terms with that, the better. And the sooner we prepare ourselves by saying, when he puts those trials and challenges in my life, I know that I can trust him because he suffered for me. And I know that there is a secret joy that even makes bitter experiences sweet. And that secret joy is knowing the Lord Jesus, being fellowship partakers in his sufferings. Charles Spurgeon, I'll give you one more quote tonight. Charles Spurgeon says, There is a tree of life, the leaves of which are for the healing of the nations. Blessed is he that eats of this tree of life. It shall take away from him the bitterness which the first forbidden fruit brought into the world. There is a tree of life, and we need to be in the habit of eating of that tree. We need to be in the habit of feeding on the Lord Jesus. We need to be in the habit of trusting him and looking to him and acknowledging what we deserve and what we are and what we're like, but what he's done. Think about this. The second God's provision was thrown into the water, the bitterness was made sweet. God had already provided it. All he had to do was point it out to his people. So it is with the gospel. God has already done what's necessary to make bitter experiences sweeten our life. Now, notice that as God is giving them this wilderness provision, there is this other strange note there. Notice this. There, the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. Now, what's interesting is God has not yet given his law. And yet this statement at the waters of Mara, at the bitter waters where God is healing their waters. And then he's saying to them, if you will obey me, if you will keep my commandments, if you will do what I say, then you will escape judgment. Then you will escape plagues. Then I will bless you. Then I will heal you. That can be understood in one of two ways. Um, The first way is to understand that God is telling Israel, look, I have already redeemed you. Now in your Christian life, I am calling you to walk in obedience. And there will be spiritual provisions and blessing, not salvation because of obedience, but things will go well for you. But there's another sense, I think more accurately, there is a sense where God is giving Israel the legal demands of his covenant, this is very much exactly the same as when God says in the law, do this and live. And when you look at Israel and you look at the rest of the history of Israel, and when you look at our own lives, we don't see more and more and more and more and more obedience. We may see growth in grace in our lives but we often see faltering and failing, we see unthankfulness, we see grumbling, we see complaining, we see coveting, we see anger, we see outburst of wrath. And when you look at Israel, you see them failing to obey time and time again. And there is a stipulation everywhere that God gives Israel, especially in the Mosaic Covenant. Those those demands that if you will obey, then I will bless you. If you disobey, then there will be cursing. We are meant to read that in light of redemptive history. And we are meant to say, but I haven't obeyed like I should. Does that mean I fall under the judgment of God? Not if we're in Christ. Because there is another Israel. This is the whole point of redemptive history. There must be another one who is tested in the wilderness. And he is tested. And he has tried, just like Israel for 40 years. He will be there 40 days in the wilderness. He will be hungry. He will be weak and tired. And yet he will obey where Israel failed. He will do all that the Lord commanded him as the true Israel. And he will do it as the representative of his people. And when he is tested, he will not complain He will not grumble, he will not grow bitter, he will trust his father, and he will do that for all of our disobedience. Everywhere that we have failed, he will obey. And that means when we're looking to Christ, we can know, notice the end of verse 26, that the Lord is our healer. The Lord is our healer. Now, This is the second name God has revealed to Israel. He has already told them that he is I am. I am what I am. I will be what I will be. The ever existing God, the one who has no beginning and no end. He's revealed himself as the covenant Lord of redemption. And now he reveals himself as Jehovah, your healer. Now, I want to say a few things tonight because there have been sort of mistaking Christian movements who have taken a verse like this. And they've said, if you just have enough faith, God will heal you of every physical infirmity that you ever have. That is unbiblical. It is not true. And you should run as fast as you can from people that tell you that. But on the other hand, there are people that will just try to spiritualize this and they'll say, well, the healing he's talking about is spiritual healing. And God heals us spiritually. And that is true. He does. He forgives our sins. He forgives our iniquities. He sanctifies us when we fall. He restores us. He is the Lord, our healer. And yet remember what David says in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. That we are to trust God for all our needs, whether they are spiritual or physical. When we falter spiritually, we are to trust him to heal us. When we are beset physically, we are to trust him to heal us. He is the Savior of soul and body. He is the Lord who heals What's beautiful about that, and I want to press this in this evening on you if I can. All that this God was to Egypt was God who plagues and destroys. So this God to the Egyptians essentially said to them, I will be the Lord who plagues you and destroys you. But to his people, to those that he has redeemed, even when they're complaining, they haven't done anything To deserve this gracious provision they haven't even repented and he's given them a symbol of the gospel and he's told them i will be the lord that heals you now that means if you belong to christ and you have faltered or you have fallen or you have given into that sin that you hate so much and you've gone back to it that you need to remember that God has said to you, I will be to you the Lord that heals, and that he wants you to trust him to heal your soul. You know, there is no sin in here that the Lord can't heal. And there is no sin in here that he doesn't want us to take to him in order to be healed of it. And he doesn't want you to doubt that he is committed to healing you. You know maybe you're just a really bitter person. God says I will be to you the Lord that heals. Maybe you're struggling with anger. God says I will be to you the Lord that heals. Maybe you're struggling with impatience. And discontentment. God says I will be to you the Lord who heals. Maybe you're struggling with anxiety and worry and fear. And all those other acceptable sins. The Lord says I will be the Lord that heals you. Maybe you're struggling with sexual immorality. God says I will heal you. He doesn't want us to continue on just clinging to our sin and doubting that he wants to heal us. He says, tonight, I am the Lord who heals you. And he has put his son on the cross to already do everything necessary to heal you and to make every bitter experience sweet in your life. Now, that means that we should have every confidence And we should be prodded to go to him. And when he brings us into that place of testing, or we see what's in our own hearts as he was showing Israel what was in theirs, we should go to him and say, Lord, I thank you that you are faithful to your covenant promises, that you provided for Israel even when they didn't trust you, That you have declared yourself to be to us God who heals rather than God who destroys because you've already dealt with my sin on the cross. That's the secret to applying this passage to our lives as believers making our way through the wilderness of this world. I want to read this last thing to you tonight. David Klein said, Christ is the faithful covenant covenant mediator who acts on behalf of his people, being obedient to all God's commands. He is the one who brings healing to his people. He does this by his resurrection. Christ is greater than Moses because Christ drank the bitter waters of Mara at the cross. Christ drank the bitter waters. Remember what was put to his mouth the bitter wormwood and the gall, the vinegar, the bitterness, symbolizing what he was going to drink for our sin. Klein says Christ drank the bitter waters of Mara on the cross, and because death had no hold on him, he was raised into the new paradise. His resurrection guarantees our access into the promised land. I hope that wherever you are in life, you will be encouraged that when you start to taste the bitterness, you will know that the cross can make that sweet. When you start to see the bitterness, you will turn to God and say, Lord, you are the God that heals. You can heal me of this complaining, bitter, angry, sinful soul. And you can bring me all the way across the Jordan into the promised land. That's that's where God is taking Israel this is the first step after redemption in that long journey that he has guaranteed to bring us to glory. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this evening what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we so little trust you as we are, ought. We find ourselves to be oftentimes just as bitter in soul as the Israelites. We ask you to forgive us. We ask you, Lord, to forgive us for our forgetfulness of all of your former mercies and redeeming grace to us. We ask you to forgive us for our selfishness. We ask you to forgive us for our unbelief. We thank you for the cross, for that tree that makes all things in our lives sweet. And our Father in heaven, we pray that you would sweeten our souls, through the knowledge of Jesus Christ crucified, buried, risen, ascending, reigning, and returning for us. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would show yourself to be to us the Lord who heals in all the areas of our life where we need your healing, grace, and mercy. Would you do this for us as you have done it for your people so many times, Throughout the history of redemption, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.